Welcome to a new edition of the Scout with Brian podcast. Our guest today, the incredible Fran Fraschilla, was really, really lucky to have Coach come on the podcast. If you don't know, uh, Fran Fraschilla, of course, was an assistant for Hall of Fame coach Gary Williams at Ohio State University. He worked at Providence for Rick Barnes. Uh, he was the head coach at Manhattan, St. John's, University of New Mexico, before joining ESPN, uh, where he still is today as a broadcast analyst. Uh, he covers mostly the Big 12, but he also does uh, a whole bunch of college basketball, the NBA draft, a whole big focus on foreign players. Uh, really enjoyed my chat with uh, Coach Fraschilla, and I know you will too. Make sure if this is your first time listening to the podcast, you check out all our other episodes. We've already had interviews with Jeff Goodman, uh, NBA player Dwayne Dedman, Coach David Thorpe, uh, Tim Kirkjian talking uh, some great stories about basketball, Robert Eason, one of the youngest coaches in all of college basketball. Uh, we've had a whole bunch of really, really awesome guests, and I know you'll find something you like, so make sure you subscribe uh, and check out all the other episodes of the Scout with Brian podcast. Without further ado, please enjoy this chat with Fran Fraschilla. Welcome to another edition of the Scout with Brian podcast. Our guest today, the incredible Fran Fraschilla. Coach, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. A pleasure, Brian. Look forward to talking some basketball. For sure. So let's start off. I know the uh, the talk of the week a little bit has been uh, LaMelo Ball. Um, what can you tell us yep. of, of what you've seen from him and just you know your knowledge of that league in general? Are, are people blowing it up too much or should we be pretty encouraged by what we've seen so far? Well, I think you should be encouraged. I, I've watched bits and pieces of some of the games he's played in, and, and I haven't actually started breaking down some of the, the international uh, point guards. There'll be a bunch of them in the draft next year. There'll be at least four potential first-round picks that are international, are at least playing internationally. A couple of them will be Americans, like R.J. Hampton and Lamelo. But uh, it's a it was a wise move. It's a good league, not a, not a great league, not the best league in the world, certainly not the second best league. But it's good quality of basketball. Former outstanding college players are pros there. Um, he's going to get good coaching. Um, you know, he'll be playing against older older men, and uh, you know it'll be a good environment. And so far. You know the reviews are good, and um, it's looking like he's going to be a high pick. And he certainly always has had that kind of talent as a, you know, almost six foot six point guard who can score. You know, he's athletic, um, probably scores better than his brother uh, did, obviously. But uh, that is a good environment, the NBL, the Australian Pro League, because it's uh, it's professional basketball with mature players and good coaches. Sure. Um, you know, I, this is a little bit of a loaded question, but as someone obviously with a really intimate understanding of, you know, player development in Europe and how things work around the world, can you kind of tell yep. our listeners how that development system compares really to, you know, the AAU culture here? What what similarities, if yeah. any, or just how vastly different it is across the ocean? Yeah, it, it is different. It is different. I always try to tell people that, like in America, we got three hundred thirty million people. And there's no one system that it's not a one size fits all system. You know, you've got for for the younger grassroots players, you do have the, you know, the AAU circuit for sure. USA basketball has really come a long way in, in, in the last 10 years with regard to helping with the development of those grassroots players. Um, 
we now have a, a pure national junior team program to go along with the senior national team, ably run by Don Showalter. So, but the kids don't spend that much time with USA basketball where we're able to develop them 12 months a year. Um, having said that, in Europe, at the ages of, you know, say 14 to 18, um, I guess the best way to describe it, Brian, is that in, in America, the average 16-year-old phenom, elite, you know, player at that age is going to play, uh, 70% of the time he's going to play games uh, in tournaments, 30% of the time he might be working on his game individually. In Europe, it's the reverse. They spend 70% of the time working in practice on the fundamentals of the game and only 30% of the time on actual competition in games. So, uh, and that's kind of true pretty much throughout most of Europe, country to country. So there is a greater emphasis, I think, on teaching the game at a young age as opposed to what we do here in America, and that is allow your athleticism to compete in all these games and tournaments, and sometimes to the detriment of someone developing his overall basketball skill. For sure. And speaking of that development of skill, um, I know there's a lot of different opinions on this, but I do have a lot of youth coaches that follow me, middle school, high school coaches. And uh, yeah. today I actually tweeted something that I, I have believed personally for a long time, which is that they basically shouldn't allow zone defenses to be played until high school. I was just curious if you had any thoughts on that. I know it's a, you know, people have different opinions, but um, you know, what's yeah. your take on zone defenses at a, at a youth level? Well, I, I would say this, I would turn it around and I would say if I was coaching at the youth level, I would never play zone defense, even, even at the, even at the expense of potentially losing games, you know, yeah. to, you know, because for, I think the reason that you would outlaw and that is, it's best to learn the game versus a defense that you're going to see a majority of the time at that age. Um, and, and if you teach the game the right way as far as footwork and ball movement and shooting and passing, then attacking a zone later on when you get to high school and then college is going to come easier to you. And uh, so I don't know how you'd be able to legislate it out of the game unless it was, you know, let's just say tournament by tournament every summer. Um, but the idea of teaching the game and teaching how to guard in a man-to-man defense is something that I would encourage if I was a, you know, a youth league coach or grassroots coach and, and simply put, I would be more about the development of the player in the long term than I would about the development of my team in the short term. So I think the idea has got some merit, but that's kind of how I would do it. Well said. Could not agree more. Um, speaking of, Young coaches, you know, when you coached at Manhattan, St. John's, uh, New Mexico, you you were at least for a time, you know, one of the youngest head coaches in the country. Um, you know, what were those experiences like looking back, and, and do you feel you were ready for that at that age? Well, I thought I was ready to be a head coach when I was twenty-eight. You know, because everybody has that ego when they're a young coach and they think they know everything. And I didn't become a head coach till I was thirty-three, still young, without a doubt. But um, those five years were invaluable. I think. Um, the worst thing that can happen to a young coach is that they get an opportunity to, to be a head coach, whether it's high school or college, um, before they're really ready. And uh, I was very fortunate. I worked for three guys that uh, um, in some way, shape, or form, um, of course, one of them was a Hall of Famer, Gary Williams. Rick Barnes has got on his way to 700 wins now at Tennessee. And Danny Knee was a great mentor of mine early on. 
So I was fortunate to have coaches who really developed me as a, as an assistant coach and gave me responsibility in a lot of different areas, whether it was be, whether it would be at practice, uh, on the court, the de- player development away from team practice, running camp, organizing, recruiting, uh, speaking engagements. I, I was fortunate that I, I was around people that trained me how to be a head coach. And I think that's critical. Um, being a successful head coach is not just about how much you know, um, which is obviously important, but it's also about how you manage, uh, you know, the job, the day-to-day aspects, uh, uh, discipline with your players, academics, if it's at the college or high school level. So there's a lot that goes into it. But interestingly enough, even though all these years later, I feel like there's still things I learned every week about the game that I wish I knew, you know, 20 and 30 and 40 years ago. So. You, we never stop learning no matter when we become a head coach. And I think it's important for all, all young assistant coaches. Here's the last thing I'll tell you. If you're an assistant coach for 10 years, don't get one year of experience 10 times. Uh, that makes no sense. Get 10 years of experience. Uh, think outside the box. You know, have a growth mindset. And I think, you, you know, you can always do something better and, and keep learning. For sure. I know uh, as a manager myself, you know, working for, for Coach Williams, a Hall of Famer, like you said, uh, I know you definitely yep. learn how to how to take criticism and not, not have uh, too thin of a skin. But um, Yeah, I learned how to be competitive, too, under Coach Williams, right? For sure. Uh, there's nobody more competitive that I've worked for. Uh, and, uh, he, you know, he taught a lot. He really did. He, uh, uh, you know, you and I probably could have trade some stories, but the one thing I respected about Coach Williams is, uh, you know, ten minutes later, he forgot all about it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I didn't even realize he you. <laughs> <laughs> you have to have a short memory. I, I, I think I've told my story to to listeners before, but uh, you know, I remember uh, we'd be up fifty with three minutes left against some D two two school, and he'd be, you know, obviously sweating through his suit and just going nuts. And then I, yep. I went I went from that to the NBA where I witnessed. Uh, you know, Nick Young, Nick Young, JaVale McGee, and Andre Blotch walking at halftime down by 20 laughing about it. So that was quite the culture yeah. shock uh, for me. But what would you have done differently, um, you know, if you were starting out as a head coach today? Is there anything you feel like that yeah, you would have really changed? I'm going to pass on one great Gary Williams story. We were, we were playing in Maui one year when I was at Ohio State with him. And we were up, we were killing Vanderbilt in a consolation game, 11 in the morning. Nobody was in the gym, and we're up 25, and I... Uh, I yell out uh, down from our bench to the other end of the court, over the back, and the referee teams Coach Williams. And, uh, you know, he, he looked at me, yelled at me, and what made it worse was the next day the Columbus Dispatch, the local newspaper, had said that. And with Ohio State up by 25, Gary Williams inexplicably got a technical foul. Oh, and he got even madder the next day. So <laughs> <laughs> I can still remember that. But, yeah. uh, no, um, I think the thing – it's a good question about things you do differently when you look back. And I would say um, – I would say I did a lot of things right. I, 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 I had very good teams, uh, very successful uh, but I definitely think that one of the things young coaches can do, and I've told both my sons this who are in the business, is um, really, really study the game from the offensive end. Um, it's very easy to get for a coach to get five guys out of the court, get them playing hard, put, in, put them in a couple of shell drills, 
and you can be somewhat competent on the defensive end with great effort. Offense takes a lot more IQ, takes a lot more uh, um, feel, it takes a lot more uh, understanding space and time, and not I, there aren't that many offensive gurus out there at the college level and the high school level as there are really good defensive coaches. So I would say that's one thing. Study offense and understand how to attack elite defenses because basketball is a game uh, unlike football, uh, but yet it's like football in that we don't necessarily have offensive and defensive coordinators. But I know in football, in order to be a great offensive coordinator, you've got to know how to attack a defense and vice versa. But offense is something that's not taught as well as it could be at the high school and college level. For sure. Um, and you mentioned your sons. You know, uh, James, I know, works for the Orlando Magic now. I know Matthew uh, is on the Villanova staff. Uh, how much of a joy is it for you to, to have your sons kind of follow your footsteps in the game? And was it always pretty clear that they'd go into it, or were you sometimes unsure if, if they'd inherit that same uh, passion that you had? Yeah, no, I, I, you know what? I kind of think the passion was developed um, partly because their dad had a fun job whether he was coaching or broadcasting. And then the other thing that happened was, even when we, even when I would work them out in the off-season, I never coached them in AAU at games, but we did a lot of skill development, and I really tried to make it fun. Uh, I, I didn't try to browbeat them. You know, I'd, I'd oftentimes tell them, hey, we're going 75 minutes today. That's it. You want to stay in the gym afterwards, that's on you. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you 75 good minutes of coaching. And um, I think that was part of why they enjoyed the game. So I tried to make that part fun. And then they just saw that by osmosis, you know, going to Final Fours, going to cool arenas, uh, getting a chance to travel a little bit with me, that, uh, you know, this was something that they developed that same passion for. And uh, neither one of them is what I would say a great player, but both of them had great basketball work ethics. And I think that carried over. And I think they both, um, they both understand that um, they're fortunate to be in this business where they can begin to make a living and yet work at a job that's not really a job. It's something that it's a, you know, it's a, it's a love. And um, never really, you know, talk to them about doing what I did. It just happened by osmosis, as, uh, as is usually the case. Sure, and, and they've got uh, a couple great, in addition to you, mentors potentially, and, and Steve Clifford and Jay Wright, obviously, you know, hard, hard to pick better coaches to learn so. from. <laughs> um, yep. So, you know, not to diss other analysts, but obviously in our culture today, there's a lot of hot takes, a lot of clickbait. Um, you know, yep. as somebody who obviously uh, was a coach first and really learned the game from the inside out, is it hard for you to kind of see some of the takes and analysis from people who, you know, criticize coaching or criticize the strategy without really understanding uh, the schemes? Well, I don't, um, you know, I don't, like, you know, when I, when I think of, let's just say ESPN, for example, we have a, we have a group of game analysts and, and play-by-play people and then studio people. It's almost like a baseball team, you know, in terms of the amount that there's, there's usually 25 of us. You know, if you think of all the people that regularly work on ESPN, and it really is a number that's in that 20 to 30 range. It's kind of like a baseball team. We all have our different strengths and weaknesses. And, you know, obviously Nick Vitale's got a different style than mine or Jay Billis's or Dan Dockage's. So um, I don't really think about it other than that. I know my personality is not one that I'm going to criticize a coach in the first half 
and, and, you know, talk about what a lousy job he's doing and then come back and say something nice about him in the second half just to make up for it. Um, my criticism is usually measured. It's usually done in a way that uh, the fan who's listening knows that I'm, uh, I'm being critical, but yet I'm not, I'm being, uh, you know, perfect example. If I, if I disagree with Tom Izzo's strategy in the game, it's easy for me to say, well, I don't think I would do that if I were Tom Izzo, but he's been to seven Final Fours, and I haven't been to any. So there's ways to get your point across without just being so over-the-top over, over the top critical. I think one of the things that bothers me um, is the analysts who don't know the rules. Um, because if you don't know the rules of basketball and you're guessing out there, then you're really not an expert. Um, we can all argue about who knows more X and O's and we certainly have some great, bright people at ESPN, but I think not knowing the rules, whether it's a football analyst or a basketball analyst, that's that's what gets under my skin. Because then when you start criticizing officials and you don't know the rules, you don't know the, you know, what it takes to be a good official at the college level, then I, I think that, you know, to me that that's when people in our business, media, coaches. Um, other TV analysts go, wait a minute, you know, the guy's telling us that this is a bad call, but yet he constantly makes mistake on the rules. So that's an area that I think I've improved on through the years from coaching into broadcasting is I spend a lot of time studying the rule book, so I'm not tricked when something, you know, unique happens in a game. Sure. Uh, I should have probably asked this question right around the uh, the Coach Williams discussion, but you mentioning Tom, yeah. Tom Izzo brought my mind back to this uh have we gone soft today? And, you know, I remember Coach Izzo was, drew a lot of criticism for kind of yelling at a yep. player in the tournament uh, at the NBA yep. level. You know, Jim Boylan faced a ton of criticism for uh, running guys, basically. Do, do people forget that, you know, a lot of coaching is tough love? Yeah, I think they have. I think there's a happy medium nowadays. Like, I don't think the gratuitous screaming and yelling is um, necessary uh, the way I remember it being necessary back when I first started coaching. You could yell at a player. They wouldn't transfer. They would kind of handle what you had to say. Uh, I do think times have changed. I think you can be forceful, demanding, set a high bar, hold players accountable. I think you can do all those things. I think you can occasionally get in their face, but I also think it's got to come from a, a, a per perspective of love and, and getting to know that kid intimately and his family and know what makes him tick and so um, I do think that overall people misconstrue um, what they think is verbal abuse with coaching. And uh, on the other hand, coaches have got to be really flexible. I had a player at Manhattan College when I was a young coach trying to figure it out. I yelled at him every day for two years. And finally, the first practice of his junior year, same thing. You know, and after practice, I said to him, what do I got to do to, to what do I do to, what do I got to do to get you to play hard? And he said, he looked at me and said, stop yelling at me. Hmm. And the minute I stopped yelling at him, Brian, and coached him a little differently than maybe some of the other guys that could handle that, he became a, a much better player and had two great years. So coaches have still got to be forceful and demanding, but I think you also got to, there's an art form to how you interact with every player you coach. And, and the only way you can be successful at it is to truly, genuinely get to know these kids and their families and what makes them tick and what buttons to push so that um, they'll respond to you. Because every kid is different. Some guys that I coach responded to me, you know, uh, breaking their neck every day verbally because they liked it. It pushed them. Other guys think it's, you know, it's abusive. So 
you really have to be smart about it and be strategic and know the kids. For sure. I figure if you go to go to Michigan State and, and sign up to play for Tom Izzo, you probably have a better idea uh, what you're in for. Also, I feel like people forget that sometimes. Yeah. That uh, you know, and those... I think, I think, and I think, I think to the case of that young man, Aaron Henry, I think his parents knew. Mm-hmm. I think his parents and I. I read the comments after that game uh, in the tournament, um, and the parents said, "Hey, this is why we sent our kid to play for Tom." Right. Yeah. And so now that uh, just reading, I'm going to be up here. Uh, and the next week to watch Michigan State, and I was reading an article about the young man, and Tom says he's one of the most improved players. And I said this at the time he got yelled at. I said, that kid will be a captain when he's a junior. <laughs> yeah. Because of the way he handled the situation, the way his parents raised him, the way they kind of explained that, no, this is what we wanted for our son when we sent him to play for Tom. I said, yeah, he'll be a captain as a junior. Yeah. Uh, this question is going to be impossible, and I apologize for asking an impossible question. But uh, why is drafting still such an inexact science? I mean, you see, you know, Giannis, Kawhi, Jokic, but then on the other side, you've got Anthony Bennett, Derek Williams, guys. You know, not really panning out. Is it is it because of yeah. work ethic, uh, complacency, role? Why is it still so tough? I think the key to, to evaluating is background information. Uh, you know, the an, edu- an educated eye can tell you whether a kid has. Yeah, you know, you've been at, you've been at the college and the NBA level. The educated eye of somebody who's been around this game a long time can tell you whether someone has the physical attributes to be an NBA player. Do they do they measure up? And this is true in college too. Do they measure up for their size wise and athleticism wise for their position? Do they have the skill level to play their position? If you're a shooting guard right now, as you know in the NBA. It's hard, it's hard to put a perimeter player on the floor in the NBA and increasingly in college if they can't make shots because, you know, your offensive spacing is, is directly proportional to how well you shoot the ball. Now, having said that, those are somewhat easier to measure to the, to the educated eye. I think where the secret sauce is is trying to figure out, like, what, what, the character, uh, what is the character of a player? What's going to happen when we give him all this money? How hard will he continue to work? Will he work in the offseason? When we explain to him that this has to become a strength and not a weakness, will he spend time in the gym? And I think that's something that is really uh, not necessarily underrated. I think good NBA personnel people um, know this. But I think it's true even in college. Um, when you look at the teams that are winning the national championships the last three or four years, by and large, they're doing it without one-and-done guys. And they're doing it with guys that are serious about the game, serious about wanting to get better. Um, guys, you know, whether it's the Villanova guys from a couple of years ago, Virginia, Michigan State getting into the Final Four again last year, they seem to have guys that are mature, tough, hard-nosed, and want to get better. And I think those intangibles um, relate to the NBA. I think they relate to college, and I think that's the kind of the secret sauce of figuring out whether a young player is going to be successful. For sure. You've obviously had a lot of uh, great and memorable moments as an analyst, particularly you know during the draft, but one of your most viral yeah. was with <laughs> Bruno, the, the two years away from being two years away, yeah. which... You know, a lot of people uh, thought it was funny, but ironically, it turned out you uh, you basically were right, as he now is kind of finally finding a role in his, you know, fifth year in the NBA. Um, you know, yeah. how much is... Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. I interrupted you. Go ahead. I'm no, laughing because I'm thinking about Bruno. Yeah, I was just going to ask, I mean, you know, how much of that 
is tough to project just in terms of trying to guess what their role is going to be, what kind of organization yeah. they're going to be in. You know, how do you handle that? <laughs> well, you know what? I, um, you know, when it, when it comes to the draft and analyzing players, um, uh, the first thing I try to do through the years is because I'm really locked into college basketball is make sure that I stay in very close touch with all my NBA friends, because I've always said this, um, and I do think it's a good analogy. The difference between college basketball and the NBA is the difference between Spanish and Portuguese. They sound alike, but they're two different languages, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's kind of ironic when I mention uh, Bruno, because his first na- native natural language is Portuguese. But the point is that um, you look at a kid like Bruno, I knew about his background. I knew about the level he was playing at in, Spain, in, uh, in Brazil. I knew that his agent represented Giannis the year before, the Greek freak, mm-hmm. and he kind of surprised people, uh, needless to say. And I think the agent was trying to hit the home run a second time, and he did because he got the Raptors to bite on you know, drafted Bruno in the first round when many of us thought he was going to be a project and a second-round pick. Yeah. And so you, said, you, know, you say what's on your mind, but you do it based on the information you have and the experience you have. And um, same thing is with a Porzingis. The same thing is with, a, you know, whether it's a Buddy Heald, who I watched for four years at Oklahoma. You just get a certain sense because of your eye and because what you know translates, again, the analogy to languages, to the NBA. And you kind of let the, you know, let the, and roll the dice and you just stand by your opinion. And like, uh, whether it's Jerry West or anybody else, you're right sometimes and you're wrong sometimes. But you try to, Give yourself the best chance by knowing as much about the game and the, and the level of play and how guys fit in and what the measurements are, and you kind of go from there. Sure. You mentioned you know staying in contact with uh, all your NBA connects. I know you cover, obviously, mostly college and international. How much NBA do you get to watch um, in season regularly? Not as much. Honestly, not as much in person because if I was scouting for an NBA team, if I was a GM, I would absolutely insist that my scouts watch at least three or four NBA games a month during the season so that they can see a kid play at Maryland or Ohio State or North Carolina one night and then go see the Wizards play the Sixers another night and make sure that they never lose sight of the fact that it's really hard to play in that league. And, and I think sometimes that when you see people who aren't as experienced, whether they do a mock draft or – you know, do the draft blogs, all of which, you know, these guys work hard. But, you know, if you're not watching NBA basketball, it's a little more difficult to determine what what it takes to play in that league on a nightly basis. So I wish I could watch more during the season. But when the Thunder are playing the Mavericks, for example, I would rather be watching Kansas State and Baylor because I'm likely to have both of those teams coming up on my schedule during the Big 12. So um, whenever I can, I try to watch. And then when I'm not watching and I'm at games covering college games, I'm always talking to my NBA scouting friends and comparing notes and giving them the lowdown on kids I've seen all year and trying to get from them the, the information that I'd like to get back as far as what they're seeing might translate to the next level. Sure. Uh, we'll end with this one, if you don't mind, Coach. I know you've been incredibly generous with your time. I really appreciate yep. it. But uh, let's say, what did you take away from watching the young international guys during FIBA, particularly, I guess, Rui, uh, Saku, um, you know, Frank Nilakino was obviously a big discussion. What were your main yep. takeaways or impressions from that? 
Well, I think the first takeaway, and it's a bigger picture takeaway, is that um, based on based on how the world has changed basketball wise globally, the globe has shrunk dramatically. You know, and that's obvious just watching the NBA and just figuring out who the main award winners this year. They were all born outside the United States by and large. So the game has changed that way. I think the second thing that, that uh, I, I recently tweeted out is I think the idea that international players are soft, I think that idea has gone out the window. That's no longer true for the most part. These are tough, hard-nosed guys. And then, um, you know, I think to see, a, I'd see these kids come from around the world to play in the league or some of them go to college first. I think it's been incredibly good for our game. And uh, the only scary part about it is as much as um, the USA dominates the world right now, uh, even if you disregard the fact that uh, we finished seventh because we sent, uh, you know, probably four or five of our top 40 American players. uh, And I wasn't necessarily unhappy about the outcome. I thought that team played hard, but I just think that, um, you know, it's just it's just fun to see the way the game is is, is evolving and changing. And uh, what I was going to say is, it's hard to find that many under twenty four, under twenty three year old American players right now that you can automatically say this guy will be a first, second, or third team All NBA player. You know, maybe it's Devin Booker, maybe it's Spider Mitchell, maybe it's De'Aaron Fox, but uh, we don't have a monopoly on the game of basketball at the professional level the way we did 25 years ago. Um, and so I think that's 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 been, been a big change. It's fun to see these young kids from around the world coming into the league. For sure. Coach, really, really appreciate your time. I know I learned a ton. I know my followers will learn a ton as well. We always, always learn a lot from hearing you speak. Is there anything uh, that you're working on that you'd like to get out there or anything any, um, no, in particular? No, I'm getting ready. <laughs> I'm doing my homework on the Big 12. I'm going to get out and see in the next couple of weeks uh, Michigan State and Villanova, Seton Hall. I'm going to go back east a little bit and uh, continue to see the Kansas and the K-States. And, uh, you know, I'll get out to UCLA and watch them practice where I can. I've got friends everywhere. And No, I'm, re- I'm ready to kick it off on November 5th. Wherever ESPN sends me, I'll be ready to go and, uh, you know, try to use that platform to uh, continue to educate uh, you know, people who love the game the way I do and kind of share my knowledge and continue to learn some things and pass it on to, uh, you know, to people who love the game like I do. Awesome. Uh, you can follow him, as always, at Fran Fraschilla on Twitter. Coach, keep doing great work, and uh, thank you very much again for coming on the uh, Scout with Brian podcast. Yeah, my pleasure, Brian. Enjoyed it. Thank you very much again for listening to this episode of the Scout with Brian podcast. A big thank you to Coach Fran Fraschilla for coming on. Really enjoyed the chat. If you did too, please make sure you hit that subscribe button. And if you can, leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I would really, really appreciate it. Make sure you follow on Twitter at Scout with Brian. Brian with a Y. ScoutWithBrian.com where you can find all my stuff and my patrons. Patreon.com slash ScoutWithBrian where you can support for even $2 a month. Get private chats bonus videos, a whole bunch of extra content. I really appreciate you guys keeping me going. Thanks again for listening and talk soon.